Chapter thirty two of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty two. Never again. Lady Frances went back to the house sorely perplexed in mind. She felt as if she had broken faith with Sir Everard. He had, in a manner, confided his daughter to her care and she had shown herself useless as a guardian. "'I dread to tell him what has happened,' she said to herself. "'I feel sure that serious face of his can look awfully severe. "'And I am to give him his tea,' Dulcie said. "'Tea, forsooth! "'As if such a man as that were to be tamed by tea. "'It's more likely he will give me my congé.' She went back to the morning-room, where a fresh log had been put upon the fire, and where Scroop was busy setting out the octagon tea-table, with its bright china and quaint silver pot and kettle. "'Will Miss Courtney make tea, my lady, or shall I?' asked Scroop. Uh, "'Miss Courtney has gone out. You had better make the tea, please, as you know how your master likes it.' Uh, "'Yes, my lady,' answered Scroop, looking intensely astonished. Frances seated herself in a low basket-chair, took up a book and pretended to be engrossed in its contents. It was a volume of Tennyson's Idylls, and although Lady Frances Grange read three or four pages about the quest of the Holy Grail, she had not the faintest idea what the Grail was, or why anyone wanted to find it. Her mind was troubled about Dulcie and Dulcie's father, yet she looked the image of studiousness as she sat poring over her book, a neat little figure, simply clad in a dark blue cloth dress over a velvet petticoat, from the hem of which peeped out a slender foot in its substantial, well-made boot. Lady Frances never had many gowns or many boots, but all that she wore was of the best and neatest, and generally in the latest fashion. A girl who has only one gown at a time can easily keep abreast with fashion, she told her richer acquaintance. It is you young women who go in for twenty gowns a year who are always behind the times. You are burdened with a heap of clothes that want wearing out. Scroop made the tea, gave a last glance at the table to see if its arrangements were up to that high standard which a butler who has a very easy place feels ought to be reached by him, and then withdrew. Lady Frances flung her book face downward on the rug directly he was gone. Oh, it's useless trying to read, she exclaimed petulantly. I never was good at understanding Tennyson, and today I feel as if my head was stuffed with cotton wool instead of brains. Sir Everard came in at this moment. Well, Dulcie, are you ready to give me my tea? he asked, and then seeing that Lady Frances was alone, he came up to the hearth. He looked at her for a moment or so with grave admiration. The bright head with its boyish curls, the graceful figure, the piquant animated face, might win an admiring glance even from the most preoccupied of men. He looked from that blushing perplexed face to the book on the hearthrug, and then bent to pick up the volume. Uh, "'The laureate does not appear to have pleased you, Lady Frances,' he said gravely. Oh, "'Forgive me for having used Dulcie's book so badly. But I was awfully worried, and the Holy Grail made me savage. Oh, Sir Everard, I'm afraid you will be dreadfully angry with me, and yet I'm not to blame. 
Dulcie has gone to see Morton Blake. And then she went on to describe what had happened. "'I am sorry that my daughter has not more self-respect,' he said with deep disapproval. "'Oh, but if he is at the point of death, if her presence could comfort him, perhaps save his life.' "'That is all folly. If a man is dying, the creature he loves best in this world cannot prolong his life by so much as an hour. My daughter has degraded herself and me by this ridiculous proceeding.' I wonder at her folly. Oh, do not be hard upon her, Sir Everard. Consider that only a few months ago she looked upon Morton Blake as her future husband. Remember how happy she was in that engagement. Oh, I see. You're on her side. You think I've used her cruelly, exclaimed Sir Everard gloomily. I do. Child, you do not know what you're talking about. There is that in Morton's character which would have made his marriage with Dulcie a lifelong misery for both. I know that, and he knows it too. Did he urge me to alter my determination? No, he submitted uncomplainingly to the cancelment of his engagement, because he knew that I had acted wisely in breaking it. I cannot understand you, faltered Francis. The whole matter is a mystery to me. I have known Morton intimately for years. I have looked up to him and admired him as an elder brother, and I have never discovered any point in his character that was not admirable. And now you tell me that he is no fit husband for Dulcie, that he would make her life miserable. Be content to believe in the fact without wanting to know why it is so, answered Sir Everard quietly. And now, as Dulcie is away, Perhaps you will do me the honour to give me some tea. Oh, pray forgive me. I am very neglectful, faltered Francis. You are all that is sweet and womanly. But you mustn't let her be tempted to visit Morton again, said Sir Everard, who seemed to have recovered his good humour. Francis breathed more freely, and as her host began to talk of other things, of her father and his farm, her brother and his views of life, his pursuits and ambitions, her spirits revived, and she talked freely, forgetting Dulcie's troubles and everything else in the world, except that she was in the society of a remarkably interesting man. They talked a great deal of Bevel, in whose tastes and inclinations Sir Everard seemed warmly interested. "'He is not without ambition, I suppose,' he said, after Frances had described her brother's love of hunting and shooting, fishing and coursing, polo and lawn-tennis. A man's whole mind cannot be given up to amusements.' "'Well, no, I suppose not. But Beville is very young, you see. He was only three-and-twenty last October, and I don't think that he takes a very serious view of life. That will come, I dare say, later.' It is to be hoped so. He would not like to be buried alive in Daleshire all his days, I should think. Buried alive in such a hunting country? Why, where would he be better off? Well, there is such a thing as a public career for a young man. There is such a place as the House of Commons. Oh, elections are so expensive, said Francis with a careless shrug. Besides, the shake could never do without Bevel. They're devoted to each other. You have no idea what a united family we are. 
our poverty has drawn us closer together but if beville had plenty of money oh i suppose you mean if he were to marry an heiress said frances naively people have made that suggestion to me before but beville detests heiresses he will marry for love or not at all well would it not be possible for him to find a lovable heiress oh i don't know faltered frances blushing vehemently oh poor beville don't ask me anything more about him please there are subjects that must be sacred as to his ambition i'm afraid that has never been aroused yet he is very fond of blatchmardon and pulls heartily with the pater in all his efforts to free the estate but as for parliament a public life and that kind of thing is out of his line he is always in the first flight he has won no end of cups at long jumps and hammer-throwing and polo though he's never been a pot-hunter don't you know said lady frances gravely a pot-hunter what in heaven's name is that a man who goes in for athletics for the sake of winning prizes ah i understand the phrase is expressive oh, but hardly elegant from a lady's lips you would say returned frances laughingly just then the door opened and dulcie came in she was deadly pale and she crept up to the hearth and dropped into her usual chair in a curiously listless half mechanical way saying not a word to her father or lady frances oh my poor pet how weary and white and cold you look exclaimed frances let me give you some warm tea your father is not angry dearest don't look at him in that frightened way dulcie was looking up at her father with a countenance that expressed a strange vague terror gazing at him as she had never gazed before no my love i am not angry said sir everard your friend has pleaded for you very sweetly and you know it is not in my nature to be angry with my dearest girl but you have done a foolish thing all the same love you have lowered your own dignity by this visit to morton's sick-room you must never do such a thing again i never shall no father of my own free will i will never see morton blake again she gave a little shuddering cry and covered her face with her hands then rose as if she would have run out of the room tottered forward a few paces and fell like a log at her father's feet End of chapter thirty two